The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. We're going to have an interesting show today because we're going to be talking about maximizing every opportunity. So, but first, uh, I want to remind everybody that tomorrow, July 24th, is National Private Investigator Day. And in support of our private investigators, IRB Search, a proprietary data provider for private investigators and security professionals, is going to donate a portion of their gross profits in honor of this day to support the legislative efforts of the National Council of Investigative and Security Services. So NCISS is a legislative advocacy organization for private investigators and security professionals. And if you're not a member of this fine organization, I certainly recommend it. And at a minimum, you should always belong to your state association first and then join NCISS. If you want more details, go to www.nciss.org. So IRB is one of the valued sponsors of this show. Well, PI's, PI Magazine is the other, of course. You all know about PI Magazine. But um, if you're an IRB Search customer using any of the products, IRB Classic, IRB Focus, this is a great opportunity to support a national voice for private investigators. If you're not a customer, then maybe this is a good opportunity for you to try it. So if you want to know more, go to IRB, www.irbsearch, all one word, IRBSEARC. CH.com or call 1-800-447-2112-447-2112. So my guest today is Russell Collins. Good morning, Russ. Morning. We had a little technical difficulties this morning. We'll get those squared away. Um, Russ is a true entrepreneur and uh, so I know he can, he's real flexible and we're able to overcome some of these technical difficulties. And I promise you, Russ will inspire you with his forward thinking about maximizing every opportunity. So how many times do you pass an opportunity that crosses your doorstep? Do you look back and say, if only I had? Well, Russ is going to talk about this. But first, we want to hear more about Russ. Um, what's your background, Russ? How did you get to where you started to where you are now? Okay, it's a little complicated, but uh, when I was uh, when I graduated high school, I went to college for two years at Temple University, and then I enlisted in the Marine Corps. That was back in the days of Vietnam, and uh, I went to boot camp. After boot camp, there were opportunities that uh, arose. Uh, after boot camp, there was specialized uh, infantry training, and I met a sergeant major 
at a uh, at a bar in Jacksonville, uh, North Carolina, and we had a talk one night. And he said, "I have one word of advice for you." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "Never pass up a school. Never give up an opportunity that could advance your career." Hmm. I thought, "Well, that's a, that's an interesting piece of advice for such a young young kid who was green and wet behind the ears at the time." But it was something that I never forgot. As a matter of fact, I have two grown boys. Uh, one is in the sheriff's department in Camden County, New Jersey. He has both a, a bachelor's and a master's degree, and he spent a tour in Iraq. And he's taken my advice, which I've passed on to him from the sergeant major, uh, and taken advantage of every school. He just came back from New Mexico from a school, and uh, he's, he's doing very well and far advanced for the few years that he's been in the department. My other son has done the same thing. He had an opportunity to uh, take a, uh, an MBA course, which was a specialized course with only eight candidates at Syracuse and Utica College, uh, which was a, an MBA in fraud management and economic uh, investigation, economic crimes investigations. Mm -hmm. So he took advantage of that, and he's doing very, very well. So taking that advice, rewinding here, uh, <clears throat> I went to Vietnam. Uh, oh, before going to Vietnam, I was a recon Marine, which was the Special Forces of the Marine Corps. But mm -hmm. while uh, in between schools, I was asked I had to come into the executive officer's uh, office. So I went in, and there were two men in, in uh, civilian clothes, black suits, black ties, okay. white shirts. Okay. Uh, started asking me questions about my background. And got into my schooling. And why did I quit uh, college after two years? And uh, I did, of course, because I enlisted in the Marines. And the purpose of that preliminary interview was to search me out, uh, vet me, to find out if I would be a candidate to go into counterintelligence. And eventually I did. And uh, I went to counterintelligence school. I went to, went to Fort Hollaberg in Maryland, uh, which was a multi-agency school, uh, where I learned the basics of security and counterintelligence and uh, other things. And that really piqued my interest. <clears throat> Until then, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I just thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. but, <laughs> That's so a switch. <laughs> I go from a baseball field to, uh, to uh, investigation and security. Uh, so I went to that school. Then I went to Naval Intelligence School. Excuse me. Then I took advantage of other schools. While a recon marine, I was, of course, went to jump school, scuba school, uh, ranger school, jungle guerrilla warfare training school. So I had a, a plethora of education and uh, and training. Then I went to Vietnam, and I was able to use all of those uh, techniques uh, that I learned. I came back from Vietnam, and while uh, I was in intelligence school. Uh, there was a recruiting program by most of the three-digit uh, or the three-letter agencies, mm -hmm. uh, one of which was the FBI. And back in those days, the FBI program was on television and, and very popular. So I thought, well, this is really great. I'm going to uh, take them up on the recruiting program. They would have paid for my last two years of college uh, and after graduating, then go to the FBI Academy. Uh, plus, I would have been working and getting paid at the same time in, in Washington. So 
uh, that got uh, squashed after I met a friend of mine in Wildwood uh, the summer of 69 when I uh, returned home. I told about my experience. And he said, well, you know, I'm a lawyer now, and I'm working for a lawyer in Philadelphia who's the best criminal defense lawyer ever. And uh, we're on a trial now, and we need to find uh, a witness. Can you help us? I said, sure. Back in those days, Francie, there were a, a limited number of PIs, PIs in Philadelphia. Now there's an unlimited number. But uh, I found the witness, brought him into court. He testified. I happened to be in the courtroom and walked out of the courtroom with that criminal defense lawyer and wound up the next day getting my page or my photograph on the front page of the bulletin. Uh, that prompted a call from the supervisor of the Camden, New Jersey FBI office to call me into his office and ask me what it was about. So I told him. He said, well, I don't think that's a very good uh, thing for you. So why not? He said, well, because you associated with a criminal element. The, you know, I had no idea who the, uh, the defendant was in that case. He happened to be the, the lieutenant for the mob boss in Philadelphia, Angelo oh, Bruno. Great. And the, the lawyer was uh, Chuck Peruto, one of the most famous defense lawyers in Philadelphia, and never uh, never dawned on me. Although the uh, Bill Andrus, who was the supervisor, told me that uh, it would be good if I got a job while I was awaiting my uh, the background investigation to be completed and my orders uh, to go down to Washington, uh, if I got a job uh, with an investigative agency yeah, and doing some type of investigative work. I thought that would count, but apparently <laughs> the FBI didn't, didn't think work. that was a good idea. <laughs> so I got a letter saying that I was no longer a candidate for the FBI, and <laughs> good luck. <laughs> well, that was the best thing that ever happened to me, although at the time, Francie, I can tell you, I thought my whole world caved in. Uh, but oh, the yeah. lawyer liked me and took, uh, took me under his wing and uh, became my mentor in the criminal defense field. And it turned out that every case that we had uh, from there on were major cases that were publicized. So my name got out in the paper uh, with, uh, without my having to pay for a publicist it was, or a PR agent. Uh, my picture was in the paper a lot because I was always with uh, that defense lawyer. Mm -hmm. Then I met somebody who was in the uh, civil arena working for insurance companies. And he introduced me to uh, a claims manager of an insurance company, and that started my career uh, diversifying my practice from criminal defense to criminal defense and insurance investigations for the defense. And as a result of my uh, uh, introduction to the insurance industry, I became very active with the claims association and uh, putting myself out there, and uh, word of mouth got me jobs with other insurance companies. And a lot of the work that I did was doing risk assessments and vulnerability assessments in the hospitality industry and some commercial properties. So I, they sent me to school. I took advantage of every school I could go to that the insurance industry paid for. And I parlayed that into a career where I am now uh, that uh, is, I'm at the peak of my career that uh, I'm so happy and, and finally uh, relaxing and making money even though I'm working 24 hours a day. Right, and, and so. you are, I can attest to that. So uh, at some point in the middle of that, though, you decided to, to buy a bar. 
and you are You're not right. tail boner. You're right. So I've taken all of that knowledge, and I actually, okay, that bar I worked at when I was a junior in high school, and I would travel 20 miles on Saturday morning on my bicycle on a busy highway <laughs> to go to that bar because I had an opportunity to work there. I would clean out the basement of the bar, and in New Jersey at the time, you could only buy takeout beer from uh, uh, wax cartons. So I would fold 300 wax cartons every Thursday, uh, every Saturday morning. Then I would go upstairs and I would clean the pool tables. And Wally, uh, yeah, Willie Moscone lived two blocks from that venue. And on Saturday mornings when he was in town, he would come in and play pool and put on a demonstration and, and play for money. And there was always uh, somebody who thought that they were a faster gun who uh, wanted to play him and would put up money to play him. And then he would teach them lessons. So I had the opportunity to clean the, uh, polish the balls and clean the table off. I held the money uh, in between games. And I would ride home in the afternoon on my bicycle with 150 to $200 in my pocket in cash, Amazing. Uh, which was a lot of money back in those days. Sure. And uh, so that bar had some nostalgic value to me uh, in the late 70s the bar was owned by the head of the irish mafia uh, and it was a very popular rock and roll bar well that owner uh, was caught uh, in the, uh, red-handed uh, during a, a meth operation and, at a lab and uh, he was arrested uh, when he was arrested the state wanted to forfeit the bar uh, I was the investi investigator on that case, and uh, the um, defense attorney and I were friends, and I asked the defense attorney to talk to the attorney general to see if they would be willing to let me buy it. So after a long investigation to prove that it was an uh, arm's length uh, <laughs> transaction, uh, but my attorney said it was a sword's length, uh, the um, uh, I had the opportunity to, opportunity to buy the bar. So I owned the bar that I worked at when I was 15 years old. And uh, I was extremely uh, happy about that, and I had that for many years and had live entertainment. And uh, that also allowed me to do something with another opportunity. I was very active with the um, Tavern Owners Association in that county. And during that time, and this goes back to 86, 1986, uh, a law passed in New Jersey uh, that caused insurance premiums, liquor liability premiums for bars to go up considerably. My liquor liability premium went from $3,600 a year to 165000 a year. And our association was concerned that the little mom and pop shops would be uh, destroyed. And many were. Sure. So we t did something to, to help them. I went to the claims managers of the insurance companies that I had worked for and explained the situation to them and asked them if there was a way that we could reduce the premiums. And the consensus was if we got an education uh, program in place for the owners, managers, and uh, servers, bartenders, et cetera, uh, of these venues, and they all passed the, uh, the program that uh, – the premiums would be reduced. So 
I did research, and at that time, a program had just been developed in Michigan called TAM, Techniques of Alcohol Management, uh, which was a responsible alcohol management program and used today. Um, so I went out to Michigan. I took the course to become an instructor. I came back to New Jersey, and then I began instructing uh, owners, managers, uh, servers, et cetera, uh, and they were able to lower their premiums. So that was part of my education for what I'm doing today. Everything just fit in in the hospitality industry. And at the same time, I was conducting investigations because I never gave up my license. I got my license in 1969, and it, I've had it ever since. So I've still conducted investigations. I had people working for me. Uh, I trained them, and uh, I was very hands-on in, in what I did. So that gave me an opportunity to uh, have hands-on uh, action in the hospitality industry, and that's what I testify on uh, almost every day. Interesting. So I, so I'm really curious, Russ. When you were running the bar, were you running the investigation agency out of the bar as well? Yes, How did that uh, work? there was an apartment above the bar. I still had my office in Philadelphia where the operations uh, took place, uh, but uh, I was working the bar and the uh, and my agency from above the bar at the time. You know, uh, I, <laughs> I have this vision of somebody coming to meet with you, being escorted upstairs to your office. <laughs> was it a dingy that's room? That's exactly with what happened, filled? Fancy. Yeah. I'm sorry. Was it a dingy, smoke-filled room? It was not. Okay. <laughs> it, it wasn't uh, a Mickey Spillane style. Okay. I just <laughs> it was more ask. Russ Collins style. By the way, the, the name of my club. You ready? Uh huh. Private Eyes. Really? Yes. And and where was it located? in uh, southern New Jersey. As a matter of fact, it was a very popular bar and, uh, and nightclub. I had live bands. Bon Jovi played there, uh, Dead End Kids, uh, Cinderella. It was quite a fascinating place. But here's, here's the thing. No, no sooner did I put the sign up on the top of the building, so I got a letter from uh, lawyers in Chicago representing Sears and Roebuck saying cease and desist. I had to give up that name. But uh, and the, the reason why was because the Laura Biagio um, sunglasses um, was trademarked private eyes. Really? And because of my reputation and my history as a private eye, I was able to maintain the private eyes name, but I had to put my name on the uh, 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 on a diagonal before private eyes, Russell Collins private eyes. Oh, so, really? We, huh. we survived that action. And what happened to the club? Uh, well, the, the club uh, went out of business because I was spending a lot of time on the on my work. There was a three hundred fifty thousand dollar balloon payment due, which I expected to to have, and I needed a part of that. But that was back in the days when the commercial um, uh, financing interest rates were at twenty two percent. And nobody was writing paper for uh, for uh, licenses or, or bars, so it was difficult to do. And it was a it was a time to give it up. So I gave it up. I was involved at the time in a uh, in a case uh, that uh, made a made for uh, made for TV movie and a book called Blind Faith by Joe McInnes, which was a Parkway murder case. Very fascinating case if you read that book, mm -hmm. and uh, another book that was written by. Uh, Joe uh, Wambach from California, 
right. on Echoes in the Darkness. So all of that was going on at that time, and uh, I was doing a lot of traveling. So it got to be uh, difficult being a hands-on owner and, uh, and, and traveling and working those cases at the time. I can, yeah, I can't imagine. It sounds like I, I can't imagine how you were keeping all the balls in the air at the same time. How does that work? Uh, well, there are 24 hours in a day, and if I find that I work 23, <laughs> I'm able to manage it. Okay. Although I actually need 36. And my staff is sitting here laughing at me, shaking their heads <laughs> and rolling their eyes because they, they, they've been victimized. Yeah. Well, it's true. I, I totally agree with you. I think there should be a law passed that we could have a 36-hour day. I'm right there with you. I so, second that motion. <laughs> okay. So today, then, so this is this is fascinating, Russ, because this really highlights um, how you did take advantage of every opportunity. And I think that often we look at something and say, oh, I can't do that, or, or oh, I don't have time to do that, or you know, I've, I've got something else going on and maybe later, and we just, we just don't address it ever. And I, uh, and I, I see I that agree. in a lot of people, myself included sometimes. I certainly understand that. And, you know, it's a shame because you become stagnant if you're going to do the same thing day in and day out. And that's why I love what I do. I've been in practice now. August 9th will be my 46th year in private practice, and I can tell you I look forward to waking up every morning doing what I do, even if I'm working 23 or 24 hours a day. There have been some all-nighters uh, uh, involved, but I think that the uh, they pay they pay off, um, and I and I enjoy it. Uh, and what do you the, like the most? What what what's your passion specifically? Uh, my passion is taking on new assignments, so the challenges of the assignments. Uh, I don't actually take on any run-of-the-mill assignments anymore, but uh, I get clients uh, call from all over the country. just got a call this morning from Iowa. I just came back last night from New Mexico. I'm going next week to Arizona. So I get a chance to travel and to meet uh, really great people. I just met some fabulous uh, investigators in uh in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, one of the things that I like most is I had a chance to meet you when we were in um, in that conference. Uh, right. And I can tell you that uh, I enjoy meeting people and working with people and, and learning because there, there isn't a single person that I've met that I haven't learned something from. And, uh, you know, no matter how small an issue it is or how large an issue, there's always something to be learned, and uh, I, I love listening to people, picking their brains, and uh, trying to absorb that uh, enough of that so that it could fit in with the things that I do. But as far as being being stagnant, doing the same thing day in and day out, I, I can't imagine doing that. That might be for some people, but not for me. I just love the diversity and the ability to uh, take on new challenges and uh, and and, and be creative and uh, uh, hopefully result in a favorable, uh, in a favorable result. Uh, I can tell you that the, uh, all the opportunities that I took advantage of came together uh, in such a way. And just taking the bar, somebody would ask, well, how would a bar help you? 
And I'll tell you exactly how. The bar helped because I had hands-on action, hands-on ability to create the training programs, to train people, to make sure that the operations ran uh, as smoothly as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the bar was over, uh, one of the cl- uh, my many clients uh, was called by another lawyer who didn't know about me, and she was a defense lawyer for an insurance company who asked my uh, my client if he knew of any uh, anybody who could be an expert for her in a case, and she was running up against a deadline, uh, and she needed somebody quickly. So my client said, well, how about Russ Collins? He owned a bar, and he's been doing this work for, for many years, not as an expert. But uh, Russ, can you, the- hang, can you hang on to that thought? Because I'm getting notification that we need to take a break, and I want to sure. expand on this further. Okay. You're listening to Russ Collins. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest is private investigator and security expert, Russ Collins. Russ, you were just talking about how you all of a sudden found yourself becoming an expert because you were running a bar business. Tell us more about that. Sure. By the way, Collins is spelled K-O-L-I-N-S, uh, in case anybody wanted to look it up. Okay, great. Uh, so owning a bar, of course, had a hands-on experience, and uh, I told you about a defense lawyer calling a client of mine asking if uh, he knew an expert, and I was referred to that defense lawyer. 
So I got a call from the defense lawyer, and she said, I have a case. Here's what happened at a club it involved their bouncers and uh, and, and uh, a patron uh, engaged in a, in a fight, and the patron was hurt. Uh, so I said, sure, you know, I'm very familiar with the procedures and uh, the standards in the industry. I'll be glad to talk to you about it. So she came to my office. Uh, we talked, and she asked me to write a report. Uh and I was totally unfamiliar with experts and expert reports at that time. So this was a whole new area. Uh, she worked with me in developing the format of an expert report, and uh, which I provided. Uh, what was more important in, uh, regarding the report was the substance and my opinions. And here's what happened. The plaintiff's attorney was looking to uh, settle the case for 450 He was asking for over a million, but it would take 450 He wound up settling it for 50 and the reason why is because I knew there were problems with the case. I told the attorney that. I was honest with her, and uh, she said, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to wind up settling it. But she wound up settling it for 50 which she attributes to, uh, to my report. Uh, and it, of course, contradicted the other, the, uh, the plaintiff's expert. Uh, but the plaintiff's expert didn't write <laughs> anything that was factual in uh, regarding the bar business. Mm -hmm. So three what weeks was it, later, was, was there? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But was there something okay. specific in your report that uh, was a real focus? Uh, sure, it was that? the way the the, the bouncers had uh, the right to defend themselves and that's exactly what happened the uh, the aggressor was the patron who was a football player for the New York Jets and he thought that he was going to toy with the big guys standing at the door at closing time of this particular venue uh, the bouncers had to do what they had to do to defend themselves and of course it goes right to excessive force so and and the right to self defense uh, so that's what i addressed uh, the injury was such that uh, one of the holds that the bouncer used on uh, this uh, football player wasn't exactly kosher, so um, that was the problem with the case, and that was the cause of the injury. At any rate, uh, it was still during the defense of uh, of the bouncer against this football player. So three weeks later, I got a call from the lawyer who was the plaintiff's lawyer in that case. And he said, first of all, I want to tell you I hate you because you screwed me out of a lot of money. He said, but you were right, and, you know, I respect your, your honesty. He said, second of all, I want you to do the same thing for me because I have three cases right now, and I'd like to talk to you about uh, becoming my expert in, this, in these cases. So that started a domino effect. Uh, I have never advertised as an expert, and all of a sudden now my name is starting to get out because there were defense attorneys involved in those three cases. Um, and of course, I got my second case based on the first case. So that's how lawyers came to me uh, over the years uh, because of the other cases. And now my name's out there as a national expert. Uh, so being a hands on bar owner. Being a person who went to Michigan to learn uh, responsible alcohol management and how to teach it, uh, and going to and be, being a member of ASIS and uh, for many years and going to all the seminars and now I'm teaching seminars. I'll be teaching in Anaheim uh, in uh, September. 
and, and taught in Atlanta last year. You know, um, Russ, some, some people may not know what ASIS is. Do you want to explain that? Sure. ASIS International is the preeminent professional security uh, organization with over 50,000 members uh, worldwide. Uh, it used to be ASIS, the Associate, Association, um, I forget now because it's been so long. Uh, they right. changed the name because there are so many international members. Uh, it was the American Society for Industrial Security is what it was called. People may remember okay. that name. But it was changed to ASIS International because there were so many international members uh, and major security players in other countries uh, that uh, these leaders uh, thought, well, why do you have the name American in it when of a great mm -hmm. deal of many ten, tens of thousands of members are international members? So that's why the name was changed. That makes and sense. that is the organization that is the main organization that's setting standards through their standards council, uh, standards in the in, uh, investigative and uh, security industry. There is a, they're working on standards now, and I believe it's going to be published sometime this coming year uh, for the investigation um, uh, industry. Uh, and those standards are going to uh, be standards that have been worked over by uh, private detectives who belong to the uh, council, the investigative council for ASIS, uh, who submit their recommendations to the um, standards council. Then the standards council uh, approves or disapproves or modifies those standards. And then it goes to ANSI, the the main organization that uh, approves or disapproves standards. And so the ANSI is ANSI. Uh, so we're going to have standards coming up uh, within the next year uh, published by uh, ASIS uh, in the private detective industry. Interesting. And some standards in the security industry have already been approved and published and, uh, and more to come. I had uh, I I knew that was going on, but I hadn't heard anything about it for some time, so I didn't realize that it was so close to being completed. Uh, it is, I think, as far as ASIS is concerned. I don't know where it is with uh, uh, ANSI yet. Okay. Okay. But I, I will learn that in September. Okay. Well. <sighs> You know, it, it's so interesting. Now, I have to ask you, because this comes up periodically, um, when somebody is asked to be an expert witness, the question is always, how do I figure out how much to charge? So how did you do that? Well, I have an hourly rate. I used to charge, I thought $50 an hour was was good because all I had to do was sit and read uh, depositions and police reports and make my, uh, base my opinions on the, the documentation that I got. Uh, but then that went up to $150. And when I had a chance to meet other experts and other lawyers, uh, and new lawyers and new cases, um, one of the considerations in choosing me as their expert was the amount of money that I charge per hour. And the $150 actually was a negative uh, or a black mark against me because 
that wasn't the standard in the industry uh, at that time. Enough. It was not enough because experts uh, and some equally as qualified as me, some not, were charging three hundred or three hundred and fifty dollars an hour, and. Uh, I eventually raised my rate to be consistent with the industry rates. Um, there are some people out there charging 450, uh, and they deserve it. So uh, my hats off to them, but I, <laughs> I can't see myself charging uh, 450 an hour. Uh, it would be justified, and it would be accepted, and it actually wouldn't discourage anybody from uh, calling me as an expert. Uh, because of an hourly rate of $450 an hour. I just don't see that uh, that's proper. That's just me personally. Yeah. Well, and, you know, this is this is an interesting area because it's always um, something that particularly new investigators try to figure out. And even um, people that have been in business a while, they're not sure about how to charge their rates and what's appropriate, what's competitive. But the reality is people actually will hire somebody that charges more even though they can get by with less because they think more money equals more expertise. I totally agree with that. My investigative fees have been double or triple of what the uh, the norm is in this area. I'm talking Philadelphia, New Jersey, uh, Delaware, the surrounding area. Uh, I have always been uh, a believer in charging a, a valid rate that I believe is going to be consistent with my ability uh, and, of course, the, the expenses and the, I need to cover expenses. So I have to take a look at the overhead and decide, you know, what is my uh, – how many hours, billable hours do I need a week and uh, – you know, what am I going to do to, to make those hours? Mm -hmm. So uh, I've never charged in the, the, the norm. Um, and that was something that was taught to me a long time ago by a seasoned uh, private detective. And I'm talking about going back to 1970. Um, and he says, look, this is what I charge. If they want me, they're going to pay for me. If they don't want me, they'll get somebody else. Well, that's fine. But what I've found over the years is that there has been a lot of cutthroat uh, techniques going on in our mm -hmm. industry mm -hmm. with a lot of newcomers, uh, and especially, uh, and uh, this is not a dig on cops, uh, because there are a lot of cops who believe, well, because I was a cop, I'll just get, get a license, and I'm not going to get business right away. And uh, a lot of lawyers, when police officers are in court with them, give a lot of lip service <laughs> to the uh, law enforcement officers. Uh, yeah, you can see me when you get your license. Uh, I got work for you. Mm -hmm. I always have work. Well, that doesn't happen because lawyers call their their um, their colleagues when they need an investigator. Excuse me, <clears throat> and when they need an investigator, and they'll call a colleague. Well, who do you use? And so well, I'll use so and so, and he's really good. He can get stuff that nobody else can get. Okay, well, give me his number. And that's the, normally how the uh, situation is. That's absolutely true. Excuse me, I had to take a drink of water. But yeah. um, the what I've seen here, especially with insurance defense investigators uh, doing the um, uh, surveillance and 
uh, excuse me, background investigations. <clears throat> there are so many out there that I've seen rates as much as $19 an hour. And $19 an hour is just not appropriate for our business. It doesn't keep the in our industry professional. What it does is it says we've, we've got people out there who are cutting their rates uh, just to get business. And then what they do is they might spend 10 hours on the case, but the bill's not going to be $190. The bill's going to have going to get checked up in a number of hours to meet the actual price of uh, what they believe that they had to make in order to uh, to work that case. And what do you uh, say, Russ, when somebody asks you to take less? They want you to work on the case, but they want you to take less than what your uh, normal rate is. Sure. Uh, well, it, it depends. Uh, if it's somebody new, the answer is no. Uh, if it's a good client of mine who calls and says, Russ, you know, I've, I've got a case here where I've got um, – Great liability, and I I need an expert. Uh, I need um, I, the damages are not there, so this case is not going to warrant the cost of an expert. But I can't get over summary judgment without an expert report. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I'll work with that lawyer if it's a client of mine. It's a good client, because I don't want to see them get hung uh, hung out and to uh, dry. Uh, that's that's a good thing, and, and that's a, just a business decision. It doesn't happen often, but uh, when it does and it's a good client, it's, I'm happy to work with them. Uh, as an investigator, uh, the investigative fees, my, my fees are in the hundreds of dollars, uh, and partly because I it, – it, it, let's see. How can I put this? <laughs> there are lawyers who just want you to go out and, and you know, do, do very simple things. They will pay you ten dollars. They want to pay ten dollars for it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't need to waste time talking to lawyers about those types of cases. Uh, they know that my fees are uh, over a hundred dollars uh, an hour, and that they're going to get quality work if they want to pay that that much and pay a retainer to to cover what I believe the case is going to. Uh, be, um, then fine. Um, I'll take it. And I have a very good staff that's uh, conducting those investigations now. I personally am tied up at working cases as an expert. Uh, but all of those cases involve investigation as well. A uh, good example just came back from New Mexico where I'm going to be an expert in a negligent security case uh, where um, somebody was injured in a, in a room invasion. And uh, spent a week there conducting an investigation, preparing to get the work that I needed uh, to uh, to start my work as an as an expert. And because of my criminal defense background and uh, my education in criminal defense, I have uh, you know had the ability to talk to talk with law enforcement, uh, walk to walk on the street, and be able to get the information I needed to get at the appropriate time, because the longer time goes on, uh, the, the less available the information is going to uh, be. So I was able to do that. So I overlap the investigation, for, which I call forensic investigation, uh, uh, into the expert uh, work. Mm -hmm. so, so, Russ, what advice do you have to give um, enterprising investigators on how to maximize those opportunities. You know, what, um, 
if you had to give steps one, two, three, what would they be? Well, the, the first is education. Uh, obviously, there's a background that uh, permitted them to get licensed as an investigator in the states that have licensing. Uh, the second is integrity uh, and honesty and to make sure that you, when talking with, uh, with lawyers, that you are straight and narrow with them and you play the, you, you, you conduct yourself as a, a straight, honest investigator. Um, and the third is to take advantage of every educational opportunity and every opportunity to be involved in organizations uh, that uh, pertain to the field that you are interested in. Uh, and that way you, you network, uh, people learn about you. Uh, if you have an opportunity to get a little publicity uh, uh, on a case that you've been successful in, uh, take advantage of that as well. Don't shy away from it. Uh, but don't use those cases to, to try your case or to uh, uh, try to get information out to the public uh, before the case goes to trial. Uh, and I think those three areas are the, uh, the key. You know, I just, uh, before the show today, I pulled an article, Russ, that it was entitled Maximize Business Oppor Opportunities. Um, it was for, from a website called the Center for Management and Organization Effectiveness. But it, said, it has uh, a few steps here. But I thought a, a few of these were really good because I, I think a lot of times investigators particularly, uh, many who come out of law enforcement have had no business experience. You were blessed with having run a bar. The, that business experience carries a lot of weight in a lot of arenas that you probably were unexpected to you when you when you did it at the time. But um, it, it says, similar to what you just said, identify the opportunity and quantify it. What is the opportunity? Uh, what's the potential? What's the primary strategy? And what resources are needed? And who are the stakeholders? What are their roles? And then step by step, try to figure out and analyze what you're doing or what you're looking at. Because I think often, um, I see this in private investigators all the time, they, they do their job, they do their, um, they do what they're supposed to do. There's no problem with that. But maybe they don't look outside the box. And I, what I see you talking about is looking outside the box. Oh, absolutely. You, I, I don't think you can do anything in life without looking outside the box. And uh, uh, my, my staff uses that term all the time here because uh, we look at cases and we're always thinking outside the box as far as these cases are concerned. Because it, they might look run-of-the-mill, you know, in some standard clinical situation, but in fact, uh, if we think out of the box, we're able to apply a little bit more uh, dynamic to it. Uh, but it, you can apply that to your career uh, as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, somebody who wants to uh, to advance in the industry. And you have to want it. Uh, it's not going to come to you on a silver platter. You've got to want it, and you've got to be able to handle uh, whatever it is that you take on. For sure. Um, hmm. So... How do you feel about pro bono work? Well, actually, 50, 50, 50, 15% of my work is pro bono. 
uh, and that's in criminal cases. Uh, I've taken on cases for people who were in foreclosure in their, their houses because of some criminal activity and something that was involved with the uh, Philadelphia District Attorney's Office uh, and licenses and inspections in Philadelphia uh, that just was overturned by the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. So we've been fighting for those uh, for those people, especially seniors. Um, I'm a, a consultant to the Innocence Project in Philadelphia, Temple University School of Law, and uh, I've worked with them on several cases. There were three uh, cases that I've had uh, that were the men were on death row, and the very first one that I was successful in proving innocent uh, was the Miguel Rivera case. He was on death row for uh, for homicide, and uh, that was one of the biggest cases ever in the, the history of Philadelphia. But I actually spent six months in Puerto Rico tracking people down, and this is back in the 70s. Uh, no cell phones. Right. I remember we didn't have fax machines or copy machines. Uh, I actually had to call uh, my my uh, my secretary to fly down to bring me papers oh, wow. and documents that I needed uh, from the file. Uh, and she actually flew to Puerto Rico to bring it to me because there was no other way to get it there. The fax, no fax machines. And so anyway, now we send, hard to imagine take, today, send faxes it? on our cell phones. So. Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, so that's what I did. I, I paid over $35,000 in my pocket, out of my pocket for that case. Uh, and that was one of the most uh, rewarding experiences I ever had, uh, even though I, I paid for it. I got the reward from it because I was at the jail cell when the, it was open and Miguel walked out. You okay? Excuse me. And then he gave me a hug. I'll never oh, wow. forget it. Wow. Very rewarding. And I, I totally agree with you. I think everybody ought to participate in some kind of pro bono work. Uh, if it's for the Innocence Project, that's a good place to work. Um, you know, Russ, we're at the end of our hour. Uh, it's been delightful talking to you. I, found I can't out believe it went so fast. Know. I know, I know, uh, but it's been a pleasure having you, um, and thank you to our sponsors, of course, PI Magazine and IRB Search. So, folks, join me again next week when we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Russ Collins, K-O-L-I-N-S, every Thursday morning. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler, and thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.